18th, 2010. Our message this morning is called Merkaba, and I wanted to show you a picture as we got started, and I just learned how to mute these, so uh, I thought I'd show you that. This is why Israeli convenience stores never get robbed. Can you see that? <laughs> Those are six women, <laughs> and all of them have semi-automatic weapons because military service in Israel is compulsory. You never see uh, robberies of convenience stores there. Wherever Israeli teenagers hang out, there is a strong show of force. Now, that may seem silly, but I assure you it's necessary. If you recognize the name Merkaba, it's because it has to do with the Israeli um, military's vehicles. But I will tell you more about that in a minute. Turn to Psalm 139. We're going to be in the seventh verse. Tell me when you're there. Yes. There. 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 Some of you are fast. these words, you've heard them quoted if you've been in church before. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness would not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. This is one of the things that I find comforting about our God. Our God has an inescapable insight. There is no one that hides from him. There is nothing that he desires to know that he cannot find out. Wherever you go... Whatever you're doing, it's not a big brother's eye in the sky looking to crush you. This is intended to be comforting. Even if I tried to hide from you, Lord, you know me. You put me together. This means he understands and has inescapable insight into who you are, how you work, what makes you happy, what makes you sad. How about this one? Go to Jeremiah 23. Not only does God have inescapable insight... He has the ultimate authority. In Jeremiah 23, we'll pick up in the 23rd verse. Say when you're there. 23rd verse. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth? Our God is not a local deity. You know, he's not a tribal God who rules over a certain area. He is the Lord of Lord, the King of all kings, the Prince of all heavenly dominions. Not only does he see deeply into your character, not only is nothing hidden from his sight, there is nowhere that his authority cannot extend and should not be recognized. That ought to be an amazing thing. You don't leave his geographical territory and suddenly enter into the domain of a foreign God. When I went to India, somebody said to me, man, that's the land of foreign gods. I said, no, no, not, not at all. It's the land of trespassers. The whole earth belongs to my God. I'm there to announce Amen. that. Amen. It is not the land of foreign gods. Sometimes people are fond of saying such and such place is God forsaken. I assure you it's not. It belongs to him. You may have forsaken it, but he has not. We're his body. 
we're supposed to work as if he owns the whole earth. He does. Who did he entrust it to? Us. How about this one? Acts 17. And we're going to flip you all over your Bible today. That's just how we roll. <laughs> Acts 17, 26. Some of you can quote this one, and that's okay. I'm going to read it because I often can't. 1726. As much as God has inescapable insight into your character, as much as He has the ultimate authority in your life, there is something else that I like even more. I call it precious proximity. From one man He made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. Come on now. He determined the times you would live and the exact places places you should live. That means no man chooses his location by his own accord. God moves and works through the events of your life. He may steer you through a job. He may steer you through a famine. But he chooses where you live and you don't have the right to. Listen to why. God did this so that men would seek him. What is his desire? His desire is that you would want interaction with him in the same way he wants interaction with you. I want to pause here for just a second. The reason that children are told to honor their father and mother, the reason this is the fifth commandment, is because it does not come naturally to us to extend love up the authority chain. Parents are not told to love their children because they don't have to be told to love their children. They just do. Nowhere in all of the Word is there a command, God speaking to Himself says, I will love them. I mean, He says He loves us, but it's not as if it has to be a command to Him because it's what naturally happens. Love submits to gravity. It naturally flows downhill. The father naturally loves his children. Children must be taught to reciprocate that love. Most of what you heard going on in our worship service is a father extending his love towards you, waiting to see your response. I heard one author say it was much like being at a seventh grade dance. The first little boy who ventured out onto the floor, the poor brave soul that walked out there and asked the very first young lady to come forth, he put his character, his life, his heart in her hands. And this is very much like God. He has made the first move for us. Acts 17.26 says that he determined the times and places you would live, the places you would work, because he wants you to reach out for him. Here comes the precious proximity. Though he is not far from each one of us, there is nowhere you can go, there is no place you can be found that his presence is not far from you. I heard an old spiritual that said, Jeremiah 33.3 is the Lord's phone number. Call on me, and I will answer you with great and awesome things. He is waiting for his children to call. Sometimes we have a little bit of a backyard mentality. Have you ever had your kids out in the backyard when they're little, and they'll look back every now and then and say, You watching me, Mom? You got your eye on me, Dad? Maybe they're getting on the trampoline for the very first time, and they're looking to see whether you can see them. Now, if they're like my kids, sometimes they want you to see them, but other times they're hoping you don't see what they're doing. Sometimes we have a little bit of a bicycle or swimming mentality. You ever teach a kid to ride a bike? You got your hand under their seat, you're right behind them, and as long as they know you got your hand under the seat, they're pedaling away. At some point you let go and hope they don't realize. They usually do just fine until they realize your hand is not right there. Christians are very much this way. We act as if we can go somewhere and get out of his sight. Somewhere where we get too far for him to hear us. Somewhere where he's not preciously in proximity to us. And it cannot be done. He owns it all. 
Our job is to make that announcement. To walk up to the most vile person on earth and say, because I'm standing right here, the kingdom is near you. Because I'm in it. This means you have the ability to walk up to King John Ill, <laughs> vile human being, stand right next to him and declare the kingdom of God is at hand. Because I'm right here. I can teach you to be what I am. All you must do is lay down your pride. This is a powerful, powerful thing. We are the sons of God on the earth. We have the ability to advance His kingdom. God is extending His appeal to the world through us as ambassadors, like a peace delegation that is sent out. The question is not, is God sending? It's, are we going? And are they responding? I want you to hear this backyard behavior. Moses says it. It's in Exodus 33. to be in verse 15. I know most churches you go to, somebody tells you to open to a text. They read one line and speak for 45 minutes or maybe 30 minutes or maybe 20 minutes. These days it might even be a drive-through service. I'm not sure. And you hear them expound on that verse. I would rather let the Word of God speak to you than just me. I've always found it more insightful than myself. No, Exodus 33:15. Then Moshe, or Moses if you prefer, said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moshe, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. This struck me as very interesting. Of course, we all admire Moses. He, he wants to be identified with God. But let me ask you, is it possible for God not to go with him? If you can't go anywhere and get away from his presence, how would suddenly, because he crossed a Red Sea or entered across a Jordan, how suddenly would God not be with him? Oh, Eric, is just a figure of speech. No, I think he's asking for a security blanket. I think he's saying, Mom, Dad, would you leave the light on for me? I need to know that you're close. I mean, I know you're on the other side of the wall, but I just need to feel like you were close. He actually wanted visually to see God and represented in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And more than that, he wanted the other nations to see God with him. This is a little bit like saying, no, I'm not scared. Will you go with me, Dad? No, no, I'm not scared. I, I, it's not a big deal. Well, you're coming with me, right? You know? You ever met somebody who's very big and bold as long as their big brother was with them? Come on, Mike, you probably met somebody like that in your life, huh? <laughs> this is what Moses is doing. And we're often that way. But didn't the Great Commission end with the words, Lo, I am with you to the very end of the age? And he's quoting Deuteronomy 30. So for at least 1,600 years before Jesus, we've had the promise that God was with us always. That's an interesting thing. Why do we act as if we're waiting for God to move? Why do we say things like, man, if we could just worship and move the heart of God? You know, I don't know what to do here. I'm just waiting to see how God moves or if God moves. These are all churchy phrases that we've gotten used to. I wonder, friends, if God is not waiting on us to move. There is nowhere that you can go and not be in His presence. There is nowhere you can go and he's not intimately aware of your situation. There's nowhere you could go, nowhere you could be when he's not in proximity to you. So what is it that we're scared of? Has the church become paralyzed by fear that we might get something wrong? Have we used it as an excuse for apathy to do nothing? 
You know, while others go work, what do we do? We'll pray. Do you really pray? When's the last time you prayed a couple hours? Anybody here can say, I prayed for four hours this week in a row? Yeah, so do we really pray? Think about that. Oh, well, I'm praying about that next trip. What does that mean? Does that mean 36? Does it take you longer to order at Burger King? Does it take you longer to get your meal right than it does to pray? See, this has become our catch-all. It's an excuse. We act as if God's not with us. We act as if he doesn't see us, as if he doesn't hear us, as if he won't protect us. And we stand back, get on our knees and say, oh, we'll pray. It lasts about 30 seconds and then what do you do? Go watch TV, go to a ball game, fill your life with entertainment, whatever you can. But you feel better because when confronted with the situation, you said, oh, no, no, I'll pray about it. What does that mean? These men prayed. They set their face to gain understanding for 20 days. 21 days, they took no food or water until angels from heaven showed up. Anybody in here been in that habit? Now, how about that? It's a different attitude. I want to give to you today a concept that the ancient Hebrews had. I think it's freeing. A lot of our church focuses on this kind of thing. We put Jesus' name in Hebrew on the pulpit. Almost nobody recognizes it when they walk in. Isn't that strange? If we called him Yeshua HaMashiach, nobody would know what we were talking about. You hear the word Moshe instead of Moses, and it strikes you as kind of strange. And yet, Moses' mother never called him Moses. Jesus' mother never would have answered to Mary at any time in her life. The word James doesn't exist in the Hebrew language. You know? Yaakov, Miriam, Moshe, Yahweh. These were all Hebrew words. Well, when you think of the Hebrew concept of God's presence, this gets very interesting. It's beautiful. It's free. I want to show you something. This comes from Chronicles 28. You can turn there. It's just a verse. If you don't want to turn there, it's seldom that I lie when I preach. So, you'll be safe. I'll give you a pass today. I won't lie to any of you today. Come play poker with me after church and you'll get to see me bluff. But in here, I tell the truth. First Chronicles 28. Here comes the 18th verse. And the weight of the refined gold for the altar of incense, he also gave him the plan for the chariot. That is, the cherubim of gold that is that spread their wings and the shelter of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, I know I picked up in the middle of a passage, and that must seem strange. But remember that there is a box that the Israel... Anybody ever see Indiana Jones? Yeah. yeah. What they were looking for in the first movie, the good one, the one that we liked before they got weird and cheesy, what they were looking for was this Hebrew Ark, a box, uh, that contained... The Ten Commandments of God, not broken, that's a misnomer, the whole commands were in there. Also, other uh, Hebraic items like a jar of manna were in there, Aaron's staff that budded. But the most beautiful thing about this is we're going to read from the word that God was said to be enthroned on top of it. He actually says that in Numbers. In other words, God is everywhere, but Lord, we just kind of need, I don't know, a focal point. <laughs> yeah, how about this? Let's, let's suppose that it's dark in here, right? So dark that you can't see at all. You have no idea where anybody is, but you want to talk to Mario. You know good and well that he can hear you if he's standing back there and you're facing here. But wouldn't you rather turn to wherever he is and speak in that direction? Well, the Israelites were the same way. When we pray, Lord, what do we do? When we come to seek your face, what do we do? So he filled the temple with his presence. And not only did he fill the temple with his presence, called the tabernacle, but he also was said to be enthroned above this ark. And this ark had on it winged creatures that stretched the rings up forward. 
and they said that the wings formed a chariot. This is interesting. It, and I didn't read it to you, but I'll tell you now. In Numbers, number 7, this is the 89th verse. When Moses entered the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim above the atonement cover on the ark of the testimony, and he spoke with him. When Moses went to speak with God, the direction he heard the voice come from was right between those two winged creatures called cherubim and sometimes in the Bible called living creatures. Then when we get to the book of Chronicles, a word slips in there. He says it this way. He also gave him the plan for the chariot. That is, the cherubim of gold that spread their wings and sheltered the Ark of the Covenant. That's kind of a strange thing. When you think of a chariot, what do you think of? Maybe Ben-Hur or something, right? A two-wheeled thing pulled by horses, a guy in a strange bath towel throwing spears or shooting arrows. But when the Hebrews thought of a chariot, they thought of something else. They thought of an instrument of war, but they also thought of something that God rode on. They knew that he was everywhere. They knew that he could see everything. And yet they saw his throne as something that was mobile. There are several descriptions of it in the Bible. We'll read some of them today. No matter what direction it moved, it was always going forward. <laughs> that sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Look, I'm headed this way. That's forward. All of a sudden, I'm headed this way. Still forward. <laughs> Still forward. The idea was you can't get behind God. You can't get out of His sight. No matter where He is moving, you're in His full view. But when I began to think about this chariot, I remembered some things. In 2 Kings... 2.11. Uh, it's another old spiritual. I looked over the Jordan and what did I see? A band of angels coming for me. Swing low, sweet chariot. Singing about Elijah. Singing about the chariot of what? Fire that came down from heaven to pick him up. Do y'all not know these things? Okay, well you can talk to me. Y'all the whitest church I've ever passed. <laughs> it's okay, you can talk to me. I, well, I might get my feelings hurt and cry and that embarrass us all if you don't talk to me. So talk to me. It's okay. Elijah saw a chariot of fire. That's a different word. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, I thought that that surely would be the same thing. It's not. That's Rekeb. And it's, uh, I, why would you care? I'll tell you in a minute. Rekeb can be a chariot, but it can also be a wagon. Now, if you had to choose which you were going to say, pick you up. <laughs> would you rather God came to rescue you in a chariot or in a wagon? I mean, this is like, I had a Corvette. Fred had a, had a Corvette in the 60s. Or, Fred had a minivan. I mean, which story would you rather tell? Okay? Well, Elijah got picked up in something that is usually called a chariot, but can also be called a wagon. It actually refers to the horses that are pulling it, and not so much the vehicle. There's a different word. A word that is only used for an instrument of warfare and God's throne. In other words, the word for God's throne is also an instrument of warfare. It's called Merkabah. Merkabah. Have you ever heard that? Watch this. You're going to love this. I don't usually do audiovisual, but today you'll get it. Darren, there's going to be sound here. Okay, it's all right. You don't need the sound. See fire? That is the Israeli tank, the most sophisticated and advanced in the world. They named it Merkaba. Check that out. 
tell me if you're a dude that 1500 horsepower diesel turbo engine in there, it ought to make something inside you kind of <laughs> get excited. Okay. You can turn this back on. Why would I show you that? Obviously, they didn't have an Israeli tank in ancient Israel. The point is, it is so ingrained in the Israeli psyche that when they think of God, they think of him moving in this throne that is all-powerful, that is directional, that can move in any territory, any terrain, at any time, and he is always with you. They think of it this way, that when they had to name the most powerful weapon in their arsenal, they named it Merkaba. Now, most of the time, if you Google something like this, they'll say, oh, it's like Elijah's chariot. No, Elijah's chariot was a wagon. God distinguishes his chariot as an instrument of warfare. I want you to understand that our Father is loving, he's compassionate, but he has a mission on the earth to be accomplished through you. Kingdom is rising against kingdom. Light is rising against darkness. There is a separation that is occurring, and the God of the universe is waging war on an enemy that is in rebellion. 1 John 3 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. God brought his tank. He rides on it. <laughs> and if you think that one's cool, wait till you hear the descriptions in the Bible of some of these others. You don't turn to these. I want to tell you these. This is Psalm 18. It corresponds to 2 Samuel 22. They're both parallel accounts in David's life. It's a time when he's surrounded by enemies and he's describing God coming to rescue him. And in Psalm 18, verse 10, he says, He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. <laughs> I don't know. If you pictured God as an old man with a beard, you were wrong. But just for a moment, <laughs> now he's an old man with a beard mounted on two winged creatures and the beard's flying behind him as he's coming to rescue you. <laughs> Somehow I got a slalom episode in, in my downhill race. This is not right. But in the Hebrew imagery, what they're trying to describe is he comes to rescue his people. That's what they're trying to describe. And when David described it, it was like all of a sudden, can you imagine that you're out there facing down a, uh, a Gentile giant like Goliath? And what do you have? You got a little rock. You got a little sling, right? And this dude's a giant. But if you can imagine that God is behind you in the murk of a tank, you're not so concerned, huh? That's how they thought of his presence. They thought of him as with them at all times. And when you hear the description of this thing, it has eyes all over it. Why would you have eyes all over it? Well, you can't see out of this tank, but they put cameras all over it so that you can see out of it. The idea is that nothing is missing from his sight. Okay? This is ought to be comforting. Psalm 99, verse 1. Don't turn there. I'll read it to you. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble because he sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. When they envision God hovering over the Ark of the Covenant, they envision, you better watch out. He's compassionate, loving, and kind to those who seek Him. But those that don't, the earth better crumble, tremble and shake. Revelation presents the sky and the earth fleeing from His presence. You know, the word awesome in our day is kind of way overused. You know, awesome. Right? This was really the only English words that the older Bibles could describe God's presence with. It made you simply go, it was a shock and awe campaign. All right, I do want you to turn to Ezekiel 1. Is that okay? See, now I'm asking you questions, trying to get you to speak. And Elizabeth's the only one left awake. <laughs> Anybody in here four-wheel drive fans? No. 
Bud's this. God drives a four-wheel drive, not a Dodge Ram, man. Something's wrong with somebody that drives a vehicle called Dodge and Ram. <laughs> but I'll say this, he gets to drive it. I often get to work on mine. <laughs> Ezekiel 1, starting the 15th verse. As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like chrysolite, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting the wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels did not turn about as the creatures went. Before we get to the next line, I know this is bizarre, but God's throne was envisioned on top of creatures that were alive, they were winged, they had wheels of some kind. And no matter what direction each of their four faces, four points on a compass, went, the throne was moving forward. Now, for you four-wheel drive fans, how about this next line? Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. He had a lift kit. <laughs> he had a lift kit that is as high above the earth as God's thoughts are above men. So don't talk about our trucks are too high rise. <laughs> when the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them, um, I'm sorry, when the living creatures moved, the wheels beside them moved. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go. God is spirit. John 6, says, nobody can be saved unless the spirit of the Father draws them. Third chapter, John says, nobody's ever seen God at any time. The idea is that if you want to envision God, somehow or another, His Spirit is moving this Merkaba. And there is an image on top of it. And it looks like a man. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. And when the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like an expanse, sparkling like ice and awesome. I don't know why, I just like that word in the Bible. Under the expanse, their wings were stretched out one towards another, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings. Like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the expanse over their heads as they stood with their lowered wings. Above the expanse over their heads was what looked like a throne of sapphire. If you had to see sapphire in bright sunlight, it's red, right? Translucent red. No? Blue? Blue. Translucent blue. <coughs> I rarely have seen a sapphire, but apparently my wife's been shopping for them. <laughs> and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. He doesn't say was a man. He said a figure like that of a man. Whose image were you made in? I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal. Now tell me, if an ancient Hebrew is describing glowing metal, how would he see metal glow? Think about that. Metal so hot that it is glowing. As if full of fire. And that, from there down, he looked like fire. And brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. So was the radiance around him. 
This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. This is amazing. This man looks into the heavens and he sees what has been over the ark. From time to time in the Bible, they'll say that God's glory cloud filled the temple. From time to time, his kavod, his weightiness, settled on a crowd. In the Hebrew mind, when they thought of this, if God's presence was with you, this was the apparatus that was with you. In every direction it moved, it was moving as led by God's Spirit. Everything was uh, lay bare before its sight. Every direction for it was always forward. What an amazing way to envision God. You say, well, that was just an ancient Hebrew. That was just the way that an archaic people who were used to siege works and those kind of things saw God. Well, 1,700, 1,600 years later, we find in the book of Revelation in the fourth chapter these words. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head. Before I read any further, if you have ever seen medieval art on this subject, what do they draw? They draw a European throne God is sitting on. How accurate could that possibly be? John is a Hebrew. He's writing about a Hebrew God. And the only descriptions of the Hebrew God's throne throughout Scripture come from the book of Ezekiel and are mentioned in Daniel 7 as well. And they look nothing like European thrones. So why did our art do that? We reinterpret God in any terms that seem more pleasing to us. Is He supposed to be made in our image or are we supposed to be made in His? Some of this has caused misconception. Because if you seem like a normal king on a normal throne... You could be in his favor or disfavor. You could be inside his kingdom or outside his kingdom. You could be too far for him to help you. You could be too far for him to see you. All of those things. You know, your father was supposed to teach you about God. And sometimes he was supposed to use words to do it. Most of the time, he was supposed to show you what God was like simply by the way that he treated you. By the way that he loved you, cared for you, protected you. Now, if your father didn't do that, that doesn't lessen God in any way. He is the perfect Father. He is the example. It doesn't make Him less that other people didn't do well for you. Now that you know what He's like, you should go do what He does. This is what it means to be in the kingdom. Jesus washed His disciples' feet, and He didn't say, you're blessed now that you know this. In John 13, He said, you'll be blessed if you do this. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, that was what looked like a glass of sea, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, front and back. I don't want to keep going with these descriptions, but I do want you to know that even though they were written in different countries, 1,600 years apart, and they used different words, one might say jasper, and another might use another precious stone, one might say ice, and another say crystal, they're describing the same thing. They're describing the exact same thing. It's almost as if two men saw something that very few men see. And it is the very mobile, chariot-like throne of God. Now, let me ask you something. When you go visit somebody, where do you go visit them? You go to their house, right? If their house has wheels on it, they're probably from a little town in Louisiana that I grew up in. <laughs> but most of the time, you don't go visit people in their car. You go visit them 
in their house because we reside in one location. So if you wanted to think about somebody who lived in a mobile vehicle, we're talking gypsy-like. We're talking about a transient. Why would the Hebrews describe God in something that's mobile? Although he was the God of Israel, he ranged over the entire earth. His kingdom had no ending, no dominion. And when his people called upon him, rather than horses or chariots or whatever else it might be, he was right there for them. This is the same concept that we've come into in Christ. He is not far from us. The word is not in heaven that you need to go get it or down in the depths. It's right near you. It's in your mouth. He's not far from you. How about this? 2 Samuel 6. I'm going to tell you this story because I need to get to some other scriptures. 2 Samuel 6, they're carrying the ark. Now, what did the Hebrews envision right above the ark? How could y'all not know this? We've been talking about it 40 minutes. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? What is, in, what is enthroned right above the ark? God's chariot, his Merkaba. So God is right above this ark, and while men are carrying this ark up into a tent on Zion called David's Tabernacle, they see God taking up residence inside of something. A tent. Can it be moved? Yes. So now we have a movable dwelling for God. God is inside it. He's movable. And the dwelling itself is movable. This was painting a picture for us. The God who roams all over the earth, the whole kingdom is His, has chosen to dwell in a tent of skin inside of you. It's like you've got your own little personal holy tank in there. Another way to say it is that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. This is what the Hebrews thought of. In fact, it was kind of a shocking thing. They preferred to think of God's presence as on rather than in you. And yet, the 39 books of the Old Testament all allude to one thing. There's a day when God's presence would enter into that tabernacle, into that tent. We live in this time, and we may have taken it for granted, because now it's commonplace for us. There's nothing common about the supernatural God setting up residence inside of people. The kingdom in you, Merkabah power inside of you. Turn with me to John 14. Be in the 15th verse. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. Before we read that, how long would he be with you? Forever. Forever. Well, we were just praying, waiting for God to show up. Really? You think you can drop him off and pick him up like a lunchbox? He's with you forever. You can't go anywhere to get up. But it is kind of a comforting present, the thought. I was over here doing God knows what. Like that expression? I was over here doing God knows what. But then later, I entered into the house of the Lord and his presence showed up. It almost makes you think, here I was with him and he saw me. And over here, I wasn't with him and he didn't. Huh. This is wrong. He's always got a precious proximity to you. He's always right there extending an invitation to you that says, if you'll let me, I'll lead you in the way that's best for you. If you'll let me, I'll be a king that will show you righteousness. If you will let me, I will rule your life in a way that makes your life abundant, makes it the very best. And 
the time. We're turning left when we should be going right. We're wandering all over the place. But then we look for those moments where God shows up. No, friends, there are not moments where God shows up. He's there all along. There are moments when you show up. There are moments when you become aware of what always has been, what always is. There are moments when you begin to feel and see the world as it should be because in that moment you are where you should be. Jesus walked around in it all of the time. And yet don't think of it as unobtainable for you because the Bible says that he put his divine presence in you so you could escape the corruption of the world. To be with you forever. Luke 17 20, he talks about the kingdom being within you. He said, don't you say there it is or here it is. It's inside of you. In Luke 10, he shows up in a man's house. He says, look, when you go there, first off, find a man of peace in the village, if y'all don't know this story. And then once you find a man of peace, stay with him. Don't move from house to house. And then when you're staying with him, look at him and say, the kingdom of God is near you. Why could he say that? Because the kingdom of God, the Merkabah, the throne of God, was right here inside him. All the power that God possessed could be displayed in this man's life. This is why he said, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out the demons. God is right here. You know, it's a funny trick that the devil's been able to play on the church. Sometimes when people believe a lie, it's because there's something in it for them. I think the church has allowed the lie to be propagated that you meet with God here. Because churches like you to be dependent upon the church. not a vending machine Christianity. Put an offering in the box and get a treat from God. I know you hear it on TV all of the time, but that's not what this is. You're supposed to be in His presence. Not only are you supposed to be, it's where the book starts. Adam is walking with God. They weren't going to church, friends. The whole world was what you experience at church. Then we have this problem. We get thrown out of a garden. But where does the book end up? Now the dwelling of God is with men in a garden-like setting. The perfect setting that we're supposed to be in is aware of His presence, feeling Him, being near in our thoughts to Him all of the time. Not two days a week. Nobody liked that Keith Green song, if you only come to me Wednesday and Sunday, don't bother coming at all. I love it. I know exactly what he means. He said, well, brother, brother Matthew, have you surrendered to full-time Christian ministry? stupid? Is there some other kind? Really? You can be a part-time Christian? Two days a week works for God? He likes that? Hmm. Well, that brother's a serious Christian, a radical one. There's some other kind other than radical Christians, and I just didn't know it. Oh, that brother's a carnal Christian. Can you be both carnal and Christian? I'm not sure that's possible. Maybe we've accepted these kind of positional relationships with God. He's over there, we're over here, and every once in a while we meet at Christmas, Easter whatever it might be, because it makes us feel like we can pick him up on a date and drop him off when we want. Maybe we, some people even treat God like their mistress. When they need something, they visit him. They wear their nicest clothes. They tell each other lies. Then they drop him off and go back to work with their friends. Come on. I hope there's not a dualistic nature in you that is ruling that allows you to be one way when you're in here and another way when you're on a job site. 
stories about churches that have so surrendered to the flesh that they don't care when it goes on inside their church. My hope is that you become aware of God's presence in every area of your life and that that requires of you something. He's king and he's with you all of the time. Your every action either shows his lordship or your disdain for his lordship. He wants to walk with you. How badly do you want to walk with him? 2 Peter 1 verse 4 is the one that says that he has allowed you to participate in his divine nature to escape the corruption of the world. I want, to hear, I want you to hear the way that Philip asked this question. It's kind of crazy because as much as the Hebrews needed a focal point, right? Like, okay, God, I get it. You're everywhere. Wow, that's amazing. But where do I speak when I pray? What direction do I look? How do I act, Lord? You know, have you noticed the Jews like to pray at the wailing? Let me say it right, the Western Wall now. People want a focal point, not an idol, a focal point. When thinking about him, they, they want to know what to do. Can you imagine the mystery of the incarnation then? When the fullness of the deity shows up in bodily form, they're like, I'd like to, but dude, you look just like me. That was kind of a problem. At least the other thing had hammered gold in it and incense. And it was, I mean, it was a wonder of the world. You've never seen a building till you have seen the temple in Jerusalem. But this is an ordinary guy. Can you understand how that could be a problem with a focal point? Listen to Philip and Jesus' discussion. By the way, he'd been with him about three years at this point. Maybe three and a half, depends on what you think. It's John 14. Let's start in verse 8. Tell me when you're there. front-right section that is with me today. <laughs> That's good to have a section like that. It would be better if there were no sections. <laughs> Jude, are you with me back there, brother? He has to be. That's my son. <laughs> Philip said, this is verse 8, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. Well, at least he's not asking for much, right? <laughs> Y'all ever see uh, Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation? Yes. Clark is walking with Uncle Eddie and he has this strange feeling that maybe Uncle Eddie didn't buy Christmas gifts for his kids. So he's kind of hinting around, you know, Eddie, uh, you get stuff for the kids this year? And Eddie's just, no, well, uh, you know, eyes won't make contact. Oh, Eddie, look, if you don't tell us what those kids want, we're going to go out and get something ourselves. We, we want to help you, Eddie. Oh, well, since you said, Clark, and he pulls out this list that is already alphabetized and about that thick, it wasn't a surprise. Can you imagine the audacity of Philip looking at Jesus saying, show us the Father and that will be enough for me? Oh, I know there's been more than 4,000 years of human history between Philip and Adam. Show me what no other man has ever seen at any time and it's not possible for me to comprehend, okay? That'd be enough for me. <laughs> Listen to Jesus' response. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. This really brings up a perspective change. God is always moving. He is always working. He is not waiting, or we're not waiting on Him. He is waiting on us. And the best way for the world to get familiar with Him is 
is pretending to be inside of you while you interact with them. Somebody says, oh, look, God's never done anything for me. You need to be able to look them in the eye and say, oh, yeah, last week when your grass was cut, God did that for you. Uh-uh, Eric, I saw you pushing a lawnmower. That's right, he's inside me. He tells me what to do. He steers the ship. This is the tabernacle. His chariot throne is inside. Two years ago when you couldn't pay your electric bill and money showed up on your doorstep, God did that for you. No, man, I think that was somebody who lived across the street. He told them to do that for you. He commands the rain to come to bring you crops. He commands the seed to turn into plants to grow for you. How can we say God has never done anything for us? You know how people can get come, come close to saying God never did anything for them? They never met anybody they thought God really dwelt in who did something for them. Maybe churches have talked a good game and haven't walked it. Maybe churches have emphasized more things like passing a plate rather than serving the weak and the needy. Maybe we've been more interested in gathering crowds than servicing the core that God has given Maybe we could step back and take a look and say, Lord, you're really with me everywhere I go. I want to make sure I'm with you everywhere I go. Seems like a really good thing to put up this new sign. Seems like a really good thing to, to do some marketing. I mean, after all, we want to get your message out. But what do you want done? This is why the word says as many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. And Charismatics and Pentecostals believe that that means speak in other tongues. Don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. You can teach a four-year-old to pray in other tongues. An amazing, awesome, wonderful gift. I hope you all have it. If you don't, come pray with me. It's available. Amen. Having said that, it's a whole other matter to do what God says when He says to do it. Amen. That's what you were designed for. You're a throne or a mark of a tank that He was made to ride on. Led by the Spirit, His Spirit in you. Never moving backwards, left or right. Any direction you go is forward because it's the right direction with him. He doesn't make mistakes. How about these words? In Hebrew, if you want to say spirit, it's like spirit of God. Spirit of God is Ruach HaKodesh, uh, spirit of holiness, if you will. If you want to say it in uh, Greek, you'd say Hagios Numa, like uh, the Holy Spirit, or Pneumaticos, some might say. What's interesting about pneuma, or pneumaticos, and also ruach, is that both refer to a current of air. Anybody in here ever work with an impact wrench? Yeah. yeah. A current of air runs through it, so we call it a pneumatic tool. That's a Greek term for a, a wrench, pneumatic. If the air is not moving, if it is not a current, you can't call it wind. You can't call it spirit, can't call it ruach, can't call it pneumaticos. If it is stagnant and still, it is not a current of air. In other words, watch it like this. This would make more sense to you. To define electricity, electricity is a flow of electrons. If the electrons are not flowing through a conductor, it's not electricity. It's just electrons. God would not be God if he were not on the moon. By the name that he has given himself, the attributes of his spirit and the functions of the word mean that he is already moving. There's already electricity right now in these outlets. It's already moving all around us. You don't see it. You don't feel it until you get plugged into it. It was there all along. But you have to plug in. You're not waiting on it to show up. 
It's waiting on you to plug in. 2 Kings 6, I'm going to read you this. 17. 2 Kings 6, 17, if you're taking notes. And Elijah prayed, O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. This is Elijah with his servant Gehazi. They're surrounded and they're outnumbered in their concern. O Lord, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened his servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. I want you to think about this for a second. The only thing that changed in the setting was the servant's eyes. They were suddenly there, not because they appeared, but the man couldn't see it, and his eyes were opened, and then he could. Saints, God is with us in amazing ways. We just need our eyes open to see it. In Matthew 17, how about this one? After six days, they show up on a mountain. This mountain's now called the Mount of Transfiguration, but it wasn't yet known that way. While they're there praying, suddenly... They saw Jesus transfigured before their eyes. When we hear the word transfigured, we think of some kind of metamorphosis. No, Jesus always was that way. But suddenly, they could see it. What I want you to understand is that the earth is full of the Lord's glory. But the prophets spoke of a day when the knowledge of the glory of God would be all over the earth. See, the problem is not that God's not with you. The problem is not that God's not moving. The problem is not that God is not speaking. The problem is that we are calloused and dulled to it and we need our eyes and ears opened so that we can be used by Him. And we take baby steps a little bit at a time. We learn to pray when He tells us to pray. I hope you don't roll over and go back to bed. We learn to speak when He tells us to speak. We learn to move when He tells us to move. And He trains us much the same way. Stand up, Dustin. He trains us much the same way. Actually, get on your knees, Dustin. I'm sorry. I love the brother. He'll do it. I know that. Get on your knees. Train him the same way you would train a little boy to take a step. And when you let them go, they fall. But you pick them back up. And eventually the legs get stronger. Now stand. And they learn to walk. And they learn to walk. And eventually they can do your work just like you did. This is every parent's dream that he takes his child and sit down. From the time that they're little and they can barely walk for themselves to the time that the daddy could even lean on the son because the son can now do the work the same way. This is why our relationship with God is described in terms of father and son. This is why the father speaks from heaven and about Jesus and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. He does this exactly like I did. That was the point. And every father there could relate to that. Every son there could relate to wanting to be that way. This is what you were called to. I was going to teach you about John 4, but I don't think so. Uh, probably you understand what I've taught already. I do want to tell you in John 4, though, that a woman meets Jesus. And if they're speaking Greek, it's said one way, but I have a hard time believing that a couple Jews that pray in Hebrew, that read Hebrew, are speaking Greek to each other. I think it's probably recorded that way because most of the world spoke Greek, and uh, God wanted us to know what they said without having to learn another new language. It's funny. To know in Hebrew, to know something, yada. <laughs> so if you've ever heard somebody in conversation say, I went to the store and yada, yada, yada. I don't know where the etymology of the English phrase comes from, but I do know this. In Hebrew, if you know something intimately, you yada. And that might be like saying, uh, I went to the store and you know the rest of these details. I don't have to tell you. Do you follow me? 
Jesus spoke to this woman about whether she would worship on this mountain or that mountain. She said, he said, the day is coming when you won't worship on this mountain or on that mountain. You will yada. You will know me. Know intimately. And do you remember what prefaced that whole conversation? A drink from a well. He said, if you knew who I was, you would want to drink of me. And out of you would flow living water. I don't want to argue about whether this comes from the outside in or inside out. And I sure don't want to sound new agey. But I would like to... So just use the example that was given. The first time you're ever filled with God's presence, it comes from the outside in. He's pouring His throne into you. From then on, I believe it's welling up from the inside to be displayed on the outside. So if you believe you've been filled with God's presence, the ultimate test is not that you had a warm, fuzzy experience at an altar. It's can you feel His presence now does he rise within you to control the actions of your life, to influence your decisions? Or might he just be one of those little Pokemans, somebody that has attributes that you put in your pocket and carry around, your own little personal genie? See, this really comes down to lordship, doesn't it? If he is your lord, he is actually physically enthroned in your life. And the way you know whether he's there, since you can't see him, is do your actions have the smell and the taste of him? Or do only your words confess it? American Christians have boiled this down to say, oh, well, just repeat the magic phrase, and it might as well be hocus pocus. It's really not any different than a Catholic thinking he can eat Jesus on a cracker. If he's enthroned in your life, his decisions show up in your actions. You will never be in a place escape his insight. You will never be outside the range of his authority. You will never be in a place where he's not in precious proximity. The question is, how do you relate to all of those things? Does he see you as a foreigner? Does he see you as somebody that's resisting his authority? Does he see you as somebody who is pushing away his presence from your proximity? Or does he see you as somebody who wants his eyes to fall on the crevices of your heart? Who wants to dwell in his authority? And who longs to be as close to him as he longs to be with you? It's a good question, isn't it? Nearly every species of animal, the male animal desires the female far more than the female desires the male. Speaking about fairly natural things here, trying to do it in a respectful way. In the American teenager, they say that sometimes, as many as hundreds of times a day, he might think about being one with a female. So, golly, how could you bring up something that base in church? I tell you what, it is meant to mimic something. Our God is described as a male deity and us as a bride because his desire is ten times that of your desire for unity. I'm speaking holy things here if you have ears to hear. He wants to be intimate with you more than you want to be intimate with him. How long do we stiff arm him? When do we stand up and be what we were created to be? How long do you blame your parents, your church, your life, whatever it is? The invitation's gone out to all. Now it's up to you to see what happens with it. He's not waiting for you.
you should not be waiting on him. He's been waiting on you for thousands, thousands of years. Y'all stand your feet. This is usually the place in a church where there's an emotional altar call that is given. There's the right music that is played to set the mood. A uh, pastor will tell you to close your eyes because God forbid anybody be embarrassed. I want to tell you that if he is the Lord of your life and doesn't need to show up right now during an emotional moment at an altar, he needs to show up tomorrow in front of everybody you know in your workplace. He needs to show up in your school. He needs to show up so much so that if your own parents don't recognize a change in your life, whether they like it or not, you need to know it probably hasn't happened. Above all else, don't deceive yourself. You cannot have two lords. Our king is jealous for you. He loves you. He wants you to be with him. He's not looking for a chance to squish you. He's looking for a chance to wipe your slate clean, even if he's already done it many times before. Because he desires your company. He made you because he likes you. That's a hard thing to say. He made you because he likes you. Sometimes he likes you more than you like you. But he likes you enough to not leave you the way you want. He'll renovate you. Mighty God, Lord, we thank you for this chance to worship you today. Lord, I thank you for yet another beautiful picture of your character, your Merkabah. You are amazing. You are amazing. Lord, I know your right arm is mighty to save. And I know that your word says you stand at the door and knock. I'm asking, Lord, that you would help us in our weakness and in our unbelief. Lord God, that you would give us the courage to stretch forth a new direction. Lord, whether it's moving from one state to another, or it's just asking somebody to pray with you. Whatever the mountain may be, Mighty God, we're asking that you would help us overcome our flesh. We know that you're here. And we ask that your power would be made perfect in this moment of weakness. We love you. We dedicate our lives to you, our weeks to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Look, Monday night, we're going to teach again. Uh, we'll be in 2 Corinthians 8. Wednesday night, there's another service. Thursday, we go to Mexico. And Matt, you have an announcement? Mike Hutchinson's going to have an announcement for us next week. <laughs> hey, love y'all. Y'all greet everybody. Don't look so somber. Everybody think you had no fun at church. There should be no sucking on lemons in the church building.